The famous curse of Tutankhamun might correctly be seen as being in fact the tail end of a centuries-long obsession with ancient Egypt as a place of magic, mystery and danger. The 1922 discovery of King Tut's tomb was in fact the climax of the public's fascination with ancient Egypt. And the so-called curse that struck Lord Carnarvon and many others has gone on to become probably the defining memory of the Egyptian curse meme. But this was the final outburst of a particular strain of weird thinking. Bubbling beneath the fear of the curse were anxieties about colonialism, history and religion. There is a lot of material to be ahem, excavated from the years before 1922 that explain just why people bought into the notion of Egypt as being a particularly mystical place. This episode of Wide Atlantic Weird finds me at the cabin in the woods with the gas lamps lit low and a bottle of Knockmill Down Stout from 8 Degrees Brewing from Mitchellstown, County Cork, with which to enjoy investigating Bram Stoker's 1903 Egyptian-themed horror novel The Jewel of Seven Stars. There'll be curses and living mummies aplenty in this episode, Jewel of Seven Stars, Bram Stoker's Spooky Egypt, Part 1. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and I'm broadcasting as usual from the cabin in the woods, located somewhere in the spooky wilds of West Cork. Uh, you find me on a disappointingly dreary summer evening, which is fairly standard here in the south of Ireland. Uh, I am in the cabin reading and writing. I'm surrounded by various uh, dusty tomes and ancient parchments and manuscripts and artifacts from many strange lands from my travels, which all of all of which, of course, is very suitable because today we are delving into some of the literary history of spooky ancient Egypt, the idea of curses and mummies and uh, cursed artifacts and all of that sort of thing. And we're focusing on a, a book by my own countryman, Bram Stoker. It is The Jewel of Seven Stars. So Stoker, of course, uh, very famous for Dracula and not not really well known by the general public for a whole lot else. Um, he does have a lot of other interesting novels, um, none of which really quite made it the way Dracula did, but all of which I think you could, you could learn something from, and most of which have something of note to take away from, something about the, the, the time he lived in. He was really, really good at capturing the fears and anxieties of the age in which he lived. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look into the history of... The idea of Egypt being a spooky and mysterious place, where did that idea come from? There's a whole lot to it, and I'm just going to briefly... Editing key in here. Uh, at this point in the recording, a real-life curse of the pharaoh struck me, as uh, you probably know that cats have a large part to play in ancient Egyptian mythology and ghost stories about ancient Egypt. At this point, my house cat, normally well-behaved, jumped up onto the table, rattled all of my recording machinery, and caused me to momentarily lose my train of thought. I'm just going to briefly touch on that before getting into the story proper and I'm going to read out some sections and comment on them, some of my favourite parts and kind of keep the whole plot uh, going along fairly quickly hopefully. 
One of the things that's interesting about this book is how many other uh, aspects of the weird and the Victorian and the Edwardian weird that it touches on. We're going to be getting into a lot of the kind of occult and literary characters of this time and of this age. Uh, Stoker and his friends basically had connections to a whole lot of them. Uh, he, it's not known that, that he was into spiritualism himself or believed in any stuff that was particularly out there, but he was very close to people who did. His own wife, uh, Florence Balcom, who was always described as noted London beauty, Florence, uh, Florence Stoker or Florence Balcom, um, was a member of the Golden Dawn, the, the, the sort of uh, turn-of-the-century London occult group, which featured a lot of other famous names as well, some of whom will probably come up again. Uh, a lot of, uh, one other kind of shadowy figure who might appear during the telling of this tale was another Irishman by the name of, well, uh, it's Cairo or Cairo. I've never heard it spoken aloud, but uh, it comes from uh, the term chiromancy or chiromancy, which was uh, a term used sort of in the 19th century for uh, the, the palm reading. So uh, Cairo or Cairo was a uh, from from Bray in County Wicklow. He was the subject of my very first episode of my other original podcast, uh, Strange Ireland. So he was a bit of a flamboyant figure in London at the turn of the century. He was famous for reading the palms and telling the futures of the great and the good. And we're going to get into, he's going to appear uh, a few times, I think, during the, the reading of this book, Jewel of Seven Stars. And basically, this is Stoker's entry into the spooky Egypt uh, subset of Victorian Gothic fiction. The book was published in 1903, so just misses technically being a Victorian book by a couple of years. Um, and it, it kind of builds on a few things that were happening already. Now, it's worth mentioning straight out of the traps that the whole concept of like Egypt being this spooky, mysterious place with curses and living mummies, that isn't a particularly old idea. And it, it certainly doesn't come from ancient Egypt itself. In fact, I would say that the main scholar on the history of the curse of the mummy is a fellow named Roger Luckhurst, who has a book about the curse of the pharaohs, which is well worth a read. But he he always makes the case that Egyptomania, like the obsession by the West with ancient Egypt, had been going on for a while, probably since uh, the end of the 1700s, when Napoleon took Egypt and suddenly there were European artists and um, scientists and uh, people studying the culture of Egypt and bringing artifacts back to the capitals of the of the European powers. And he says that uh, this fascination with ancient Egypt was fashionable, it was huge, it was popular. Mummy unwrapping was a, a thing. The upper-class uh, people in London would famously have these open salons where they would unwrap a mummy and all of their friends would come and go up at it. And at the time, Luckhurst notes, this was not seen as anything spooky or transgressive. It was just a kind of a curiosity. It was maybe a scientific endeavour, but there was no feeling that they were messing with powers that, you know, they should not be. And there was no feeling that uh, this was in any way transgressive, that these were just physical artefacts. They weren't really people. There was no... They didn't have to worry about desecration or souls or, you know, revenge from beyond the grave. There was no hint of this in those days. And it's not until about the 1860s and later that... Um, the British in particular start to become more uncomfortable with the, the fact that they're taking all these artifacts, they're looting effectively from this ancient power that they pr profess to have a great 
respect for. You know, the British power, the British Empire always looked back at some of the great powers of history, the Romans and ultimately the Egyptians, and said, you know, we want to be like them. They were the originators of what we now consider to be like Western civilization. But now they've become all Eastern and, and despotic and Orientalized. And so there was this this kind of back and forth within the Victorian and the Edwardian uh, imagination and the place of ancient Egypt in the imagination of the, the Western powers during this time is very curious indeed, especially as the 19th century comes to a close and Britain eventually has to kind of step in and take control. I think by 1882, they, they have, they're putting down this uprising where they, ha they have tenuous control over Cairo because of basically the amount of, of money that the Hadiv, who is the ruler, owes the British government at this point for, you know, funding projects like the, the, the Suez Canal. But when there's like outbreaks on the streets, the British government finally put boots on the ground, send soldiers in in the early 1880s and then sort of inadvertently find themselves in control of this ancient kingdom. So it's it's a real weird dichotomous moment for the British psyche where on the one hand you have this ancient civilization that they trace their own ideas to and, and, and they look back at with awe and reverence and on the other hand they're faced with this idea well now it's this country is in a bit of a mess to the extent that we have to step in and and lay down the law which is perhaps how a pro-imperial British person of the period might have seen it. So... They, Luckhurst reckons that by the end of the century, the British in particular are becoming less sure of the idea of empire. They're less comfortable with it. It's more difficult to make the case that empire is a good thing and that controlling these lands and, you know, happily taking their artifacts is, is undoubtedly a good thing. Of course, there have been some very, very large um, revolutions and, and attempted revolutions. In the meantime, the, the, you have the Indian mutiny of 1857 and you have... A revolution in Jamaica as well in the 1860s and these are tremendously scarring to the Victorian public in Britain there they've gone from sort of you know making themselves believe that the the local people in the empire are, are very happy to have the British come and rule them and they've kind of been forcibly brought around to realize well no actually everybody's not happy with this arrangement so their connection to the empire and to Egypt in particular is much more nuanced uh, by the time Stoker writes The Jewel of Seven Stars in uh, 1903. Coming closer to that time, the place of Egypt in sort of gothic fiction is, is set into train by, well, a lot of different bits of literature, not all of which I have time to cover, but some of my favourites would be uh, two short stories by Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, the first one is The Ring of Thoth, if I'm saying that right, from 1890. And, and that involves a character in a museum in Paris who meets a, an Egyptian who has used some sort of ancient scientific knowledge to render himself uh, pretty much immortal. So you have this idea of the, the long-lived oriental sort of um, priest who comes back from the grave and is looking to meet his long-lost love. So some of these themes will eventually crystallise into the, the sort of mummy as we know him today and, and you know thinking about the 1932 universal movie which kind of crystallizes all of these various tropes really for the first time then in 1892 conan doyle writes lot number 249 which is about a uh, a mummy artifact which is being kept in a university in britain uh, by a student who learns how to read ancient egyptian and learns how to you know call forth this curse which reanimates the mummy and it shuffles around 
uh, East East Anglia, like killing people who are his enemies. So that's one, certainly one of the earliest versions of the the mummy as the sort of monster movie villain that we would recognise today. And Conan Doyle, of course, proved then to be instrumental in the propagation of the mummy's curse narrative. After Howard Carter discovers the tomb of Tutankhamun uh, in the Valley of the Kings in 1922. And again, another uh, another familiar character, Cairo, will insert himself into that story as well as he kind of was wont to do. But we'll, we'll get back to him a little bit later. Anyway, my copy of Jewel of Seven Stars is the Penguin Classics edition. has a lovely cover by... Oh, I'm not going to be able to say this name. It looks Eastern European. I don't want to murder that. But it was a purpose-painted one with these uh, lovely white flowers and a red background, which sounds nice, but manages to be manages to be quite spooky and sort of unsettling in its own way and that's really the kind of book this is there's a great intro and and opening notes by uh, Kate Hebblethwaite and I'm going to quote just a little bit my favorite part here is is a section called Stoker's Egypt and Queen Hatshepsut now the main villain in Jewel of Seven Stars is a female ruler from ancient Egypt called Queen Terra and this is based on a real character, who, a real actual person from history, who, which is the Queen Hatshepsut, <laughs> who was unearthed by none other than Howard Carter earlier in his career, uh, back in 1902, so shortly before this book was written. Now, here's what it says in the intro. Bram Stoker's own knowledge of things Egyptian was considerable. Trinity College Dublin, where he had been a student between 1864 and 1870, was a noted centre for the study of Orientalism in Britain and Ireland. In the 1870s, Stoker frequently associated with Sir William Wilde, the father of the more famous Oscar Wilde, uh, who was a really interesting guy in his own right and um, was quite well known for writing books of uh, Irish folklore, many of which tie into themes I've covered elsewhere in this podcast. Uh, While I'm editing and while I'm on the subject, it's also worth mentioning the other member of this really rather extraordinary family, who is, of course, William's wife, Lady Jane Wilde, who not only wrote amazing books of Irish folklore um, in her own right, but was also an early uh, fighter for women's rights in Ireland and Britain, and uh, ended up becoming rather an important early Irish nationalist in her writings as well. Uh, And really an all-around incredible example of the type of mystical and Celtic twilight sort of pseudo-nationalism that was taking off in Ireland at this time. A really, really interesting family indeed. William, Sir William Wilde uh, was an Egyptology enthusiast and a tireless campaigner for the transportation of Cleopatra's needle to England, finally achieved in 1878. So we'll, we'll stick a pin in that because I want to come back to the Cleopatra's needle thing. During an expedition to Egypt in 1837, Wilde had found a mummy pulled out of its tomb near Saqqara and he had brought it back to Dublin. The account of his travels, narrative of a voyage to Madeira, Tenerife, and along the shores of the Mediterranean, including a visit to Algier, Egypt, Palestine, Tyre, Rhodes, Telemessus, Cyprus, and Greece. They sure knew how to do book titles in those days. Published in two volumes in 1840, is among a number of texts on Egyptology known to have been owned by Stoker. Others include Wallace Budge's Easy Lessons in Egyptian Hieroglyphics, Uh, His translation of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and a whole lot of other books here by Wallace Budge, and Flinders Petrie's Egyptian Tales Translated from the the Papyri from 1895. 
<clears throat> now, this is a bit of a who's who of, you know, kind of people involved in the, the concept of spooky Egypt around about the turn of the century. So uh, Wallace Budge is, is, I think, Sir Ernest Wallace Budge, who was the, see if I can get this right, he was the keeper of antiquities of, of Egypt and Mesopotamia, maybe? Anyway, in, in the British Museum in the early 20th century. And he spent basically the latter half of his career post-1922 fending off uh, all of the rumours about the, the, the curse of Tutankhamun. There's so much evidence that he was, in, you know, inundated with, with mail by people who wanted to ask about Firstly, the, the the supposedly cursed mummy case of Amun Ra uh, in the nineteen oh early early twentieth century, and then later on the the curse of Tutankhamun as well. So uh, he supposedly always said that this stuff wasn't real, and uh, was trying to convince people that it wasn't real. But there's also some evidence to say that he was kind of pleased that this made people interested in Egyptology as well. And um, he did he wasn't any sort of spiritualist or supernatural believing person, though. He did attend the Secret Ghost Club in London at least once at the behest of a friend and fellow Egyptologist Sir Douglas Murray, who will probably show up in another episode. Just a quick note to say, some sources you read will claim that Wallace Budge was a sort of a spiritualist or a believer in the occult. I think this is mostly because he shows up in a lot of legends, especially the story of the cursed mummy case of Amun-Ra, a lot of versions of that story I've heard over the years have a quote from Wallace Budge saying uh, something to the effect of, uh, don't quote this during my lifetime, but the the mummy case caused the First World War. So he's mixed up in a lot of these legends. I don't think there's a lot of truth to it. And really, at the end of the day, I kind of side with uh, the, the writer Roger Luckhurst here saying that, he was generally a skeptic. He did attend the ghost club meetings at least once and uh, told a few stories there. But I, I think that's as far as the hard evidence for his involvement in the occult really goes. And really, going to the ghost club and telling a ghost story was not an, was not an out-of-the-ordinary thing for a, a well-to-do London gentleman at the turn of the century. We've also got <clears throat> Flinders Petrie here mentioned as an Egyptologist. He was the guy who kind of kicked Egyptology into the form of being a true modern science instead of just fellows out in the desert um, kind of stealing stuff and looting, looting tombs. Flinders Petrie shows up in my episode called All of Them Witches because he then, he, he trained Margaret Murray, who went on to be a very famous female uh, British Egyptologist in the early 20th century and then she went a bit off the rails later in her career and came up with the notion of the, the witch cult of Western Europe, the idea that uh, ancient pagan witch cults still existed and and uh, and that sort of thing. Tremendously interesting in her own right as well and really key to the kind of pseudo-occult circles of that time. Now I want to talk a little bit more about Cleopatra's needle because this is a, a key sort of artifact in the the connection between turn of the century London and the, the concept of mysterious spooky Egypt. I knew about it first in the book From Hell, which of course is Alan Moore's incredible graphic novel from the 1980s about Jack the Ripper, who was written 100 years after the, the Jack the Ripper murders in 1888. And there's an incredible chapter where the main character takes a trip around London and Alan Moore just goes to town on what he calls the psychogeography of London. So 
William Gull is the character and he everywhere he goes he sees occult connections to ancient history and he stops at the Cleopatra's Needle which is a, a like a what would you call it an obelisk that is by the River Thames in London I've walked past it many times myself and I'm going to read a little bit here from a blog called Quadrivia because the original text by Alan Moore my copy of from Hell is enormous and kind of difficult to <laughs> physically manoeuvre into position. So I'm going to get a quick rundown of the history of Cleopatra's Needle here because it's just amazing and it kind of shows some of the Gothic ideas that the British must have had in connection with ancient Egypt at the time. So it's a 21 metre tall red granite Egyptian obelisk standing on the Thames Embankment. Built during the reign of Thutmose III in 1450 BC, it stood with an identical twin in Heliopolis before being moved by Augustus to Cleopatra's palace in Alexandria in 10 BC. During the journey, the road beneath the cart carrying the obelisk supposedly collapsed, revealing a hidden prehistoric tomb. Around 1300 AD, the obelisk was toppled and gradually enveloped by sand. The Viceroy of Egypt, Mehmet Ali, gifted the obelisk to the United Kingdom in 1819. Initially unwilling to take on the cost and logistics of transportation, it remained buried in Alexandria until 1877. So at this point you can see already a history of misfortune, but this would have been the point at which the likes of William Wilde would have stepped in in London, you know, with society stirring up um, interest in ancient Egypt and stirring up the desire to finally get this immense monument somehow dug out of the sands and brought back finally to, to England. Uh, so at that point they got it removed and loaded into a bizarre cigar-shaped craft and towed through the Mediterranean. En route to England, a storm erupted. Six crewmen were killed attempting to rescue the sinking obelisk, which was abandoned and assumed lost. Days later it was found drifting in the Bay of Biscay by Spanish fishing boats and eventually made its way to London where it now stands, supposedly haunted by the ghosts of those who have committed suicide nearby. Buried beneath it is a time capsule containing an odd assortment of Victoriana, tobacco pipes, a razor, a portrait of Queen Victoria and photographs of English women. What it doesn't say here is that the photographs were supposedly of the most beautiful women of London at that time. So I don't know if they're ever going to dig up that time capsule but you know wouldn't mind taking a look see what the see what the Victorians thought as, as being a particularly attractive women. The obelisk's twin sits in New York Central Park a gift to commemorate the opening of the Suez Canal. Although its hieroglyphics survived 3,000 years exposure to the Egyptian air, they have virtually disappeared after 130 years in New York. So that's the uh, Cleopatra's Needle. It's named that, though, uh, as you, if you can keep your chronology straight, it was uh, separated by her, f from her by quite a few years. Perhaps... Uh, I think Alan Moore states in his novel that uh, we are closer to its construction than she was, <laughs> which kind of is a little bit hard to take. So we're going to get started on the Jewel of Seven Stars finally.
This starts as a bit of a mystery story. Uh, it's very slow. It, Stoker only barely drops in the gothic elements very, very slowly. He was not my favourite writer out of the Victorian writers as a kid. I found him kind of stiff and hard going, and, and sometimes I still do, but I find him worth diving into for certain elements. And it, he's really good for giving you ideas about what Victorian society might have been like. So what we do, what happens is we start with a young man named Ross and he's summoned in the middle of the night to a presumably posh house in London, Kensington Palace Road in fact. And this is the house of an Egyptologist by the name of Abel Trelawney, which is a great name. And he, something bad has happened to him because he is in some sort of a coma on his bed in his room. And he's been summoned, or the young man Ross has been summoned by Trelawney's daughter Margaret who he's a friend of or an acquaintance it turns out as you can imagine he's in love with her and there's a whole lot of really really typical turn of the century stuff about his love for her and how he sees her and it's rather patronizing at the beginning of the book but it, it does go to some interesting places later which kind of makes you wonder kind of what Bram Stoker really does think of this sort of attitude so a bunch of other people come into the house and it's all kind of standard Victorian or Edwardian mystery stuff. You could be reading a Wilkie Collins novel for the first few chapters and not a whole lot happens that's interesting from my point of view, except that very, very late in the game, like after about 40 pages of these characters being in the bedroom where um, the Egyptologist Trelawney is, is knocked out, they mention, oh, oh yes, and by the way, the room was full of artifacts. So you couldn't move for for uh, mummies and statues and things. They 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 drop that in, or Stoker drops that in rather late. So there is a some odd things in the room, including a mummified cat. And uh, I like this little section here where uh, the doctor in the in the room says, "Simply this, my dear young lady, that the antagonist will be a mummy cat like this one. There are, I take it." Plenty of them to be had in Museum Street. I shall get one and place it here instead of that one. You won't think that a temporary exchange will violate your father's instructions, I hope. We shall then find out to begin with whether Silvio objects to all mummy cats or only to this one in particular. Firstly, I love the idea that in 1903 you can just expect to walk into any shop <laughs> on Museum Street and just buy a mummy cat. That's brilliant kind of gives you a hint as to what the Egyptomania of the time must have been like. Secondly, we have some of the gothic elements starting to pop in here finally. So um, Silvio is uh, Margaret's cat and the cat, as in all classic horror movies, uh, knows that something is up and has an aversion to uh, a mummified cat that is in the room. Uh, so we know that the father, Abel Trelawney, left some instructions with his other archaeological friends to say kind of strange gothic things like, hey, if anything were to happen to me while I'm studying these ancient artifacts, well, please uh, make sure that somebody is always watching me in the room. I want at least two people in the room at all times. So we know something's up and we know that he expected perhaps something dangerous to come from his studies. Now here's what Stoker says about the room. The room and all in it gave grounds for strange thoughts. There were so many ancient relics that unconsciously one was taken back to strange lands and strange times. There were so many mummies or mummy objects round which there seems to cling forever the penetrating odours of bitumen and spices and gums, nard and circassia's balmy smells, that one was unable to forget the past. 
Of course, there was but little light in the room, and that carefully shaded, so that there was no glare anywhere. None of that direct light which can manifest itself as a power or an entity and so make for companionship. So yeah, some of the kind of spooky gothic stuff coming in there. And then he kind of becomes obsessed with the smells. He, he seems to believe that there are smells coming from these objects uh, that somehow tie back to ancient mysteries. So he says, The only thing which it could not altogether abrogate was the strange Egyptian smell. You may put a mummy in a glass case and hermetically seal it so that no corroding air can get within, but all the same, it will exhale its odour. One might think that four or five thousand years would exhaust the olfactory qualities of anything, but experience teaches us that these smells remain, and that their secrets are unknown to us. Today they are as much mysteries as they were when the embalmers put the body in the bath of Natron. All at once I sat up. I had become lost in an absorbing reverie. The Egyptian smell had seemed to get on my nerves, and on my memory, on my very will. I love this. I love the, the it's kind of implied that, you know, that the very physical make makeup of the mummies themselves exude this sort of malevolent force, you know, tying you back thousands of years and that there's something inherently weird and spooky about them. So a lot of characters come into the story to try and, you know, put in their two cents as to what's going on. There are various policemen and doctors come and go and it's all very, very slow. Uh, Stoker is playing his cards very close to his chest. I've chosen the kind of e gothic or e Egyptological bits because I find them interesting, but uh, his pacing is very deliberate here. At one point, uh, one of the characters says that the whole thing is a bit like one of those, quote, penny dreadful mysteries, which of course were the, uh, the very cheap, uh, trashy horror novels that were uh, a big deal in the 19th century. So eventually... Um, oh, people start to believe that it must have been Margaret Trelawney who's done this to him. And every night that they're on watch, something a little bit weird happens. So um, it turns out that some force is causing Trelawney, even in his in his stupor, in his in his coma, to climb out of the bed and try and uh, make his way towards a safe. And something keeps trying to hack off his hand. He keeps getting these strange, mysterious injuries on his hand. And they seem to be made by something that has like seven fingers or seven claws. The number seven will prove to be very important here. Meanwhile, our hero, our narrator, Ross, though he's a bit of a stick in the mud, I wouldn't call him a hero myself. He's Honestly, he's even worse than Jonathan Harker in Dracula. There's a whole lot of standing around and, and doing nothing in this book for the first bit anyway. If you thought the characters in Dracula were useless, oh man, wait till you get this one. But meanwhile, he starts to notice things about, he starts to drop little hints about Margaret, so he obviously fancies her. But um, the book starts to make connections between her and, like, some ancient entity. So he says, a princess, that was it. The idea seemed to satisfy my mind and to bring back in a wave of light the first moment that she swept across my vision at the ball in Belgrave Square. A queenly figure, tall and slim, bending, swaying, undulating as the lily or the lotus clad in a flowing gown of some filmy black material shot with gold. For ornament in her hair, she wore an old Egyptian jewel, a tiny crystal disc set between rising plumes carved in lapis lazuli. On her wrist was a broad bangle or bracelet of antique work in the shape of a pair of spreading wings wrought in gold, with the feathers made of coloured gems. For all her gracious bearing towards me, when our hostess introduced me, I was then afraid of her. 
constantly the, the, the connection is made between Margaret and, you know, aspects of ancient Egypt, but also the difference between her as a sort of an ideal Victorian woman who is kind of meek and submissive and almost childlike uh, to someone more powerful and more scary. So he goes back and forth about this depending on her, her kind of demeanor at any particular moment. Uh, and there's a nice bit here. So one of the themes of this book is most certainly that the ancients must or may have had sort of secret ancient knowledge that we have forgotten. And this is an incredibly powerful idea. This goes, I mean, this already existed. You already have the, the, the kind of resurgence of the Atlantis idea in the 1880s by Ignatius Donnelly, who I talk about a lot. So it's not a new idea, but I mean, this was really to go nuts in the 20th century, eventually with the ancient aliens and with... Eric von Daniken, and I, I trace a direct line from this to that, no question. But here's what Stoker says in 1903. He says, These very mummy smells arise from the presence of substances and combinations of substances which the Egyptian priests, who were the learned men and scientists of their time, found by the experience of centuries to be strong enough to arrest the natural forces of decay. There must be powerful agencies at work to effect such a purpose, and it is possible that we may have here some rare substance or combination whose qualities and powers are not understood in this later and more prosaic age. Nice. So we, we definitely have the hint here that the ancient new things of which we have perhaps forgotten. So uh, another character comes into the story at this point who is Corbeck and he's an archaeologist and he's a colleague of Trelawney. So Stoker, Stoker gives some really weird physical descriptions of people in this book. And a lot of it is tied up to these Victorian ideas of, you know, you can tell what somebody's personality is by the shape of their head and the shape of their skull. There's a bit of phrenology kind of going on here. So here's what he says about Corbeck. A short, sturdy man, brown as a coffee berry, possibly inclined to be fat, but now lean exceedingly. The deep wrinkles in his face and neck were not merely from time and exposure. There were those unmistakable signs where flesh or fat has fallen away and the skin has become loose. The neck was simply an intricate surface of seams and wrinkles and was sun-scarred with the burning of the desert. The Far East, the tropic seasons and the desert each can have its colour mark. But all three are quite different and an eye which has once known can thenceforth easily distinguish them. The dusky pallor of one, the fierce red-brown of the other, and of the third, the dark ingrained burning, as though it, it had become a permanent colour. Uh, his forehead was a fine one, high and broad, with, to use the terms of physiognomy, physiognomy, the frontal sinus boldly marked. The squareness of it showed ratiocination, and the fullness under the eyes, language. He had the short, broad nose that marks energy, the square chin, marked despite a thick, unkempt beard, and massive jaw that showed great resolution. No bad man for the desert, I thought, as I looked. Ah, oh, fantastic. This is top-notch, you know, top-tier sort of turn-of-the-century writing. So firstly, you've got the whole notion that all these weird pseudosciences that you can you can tell somebody's personality by the look of them. I have no idea what physiognomy is. Or I, well, I've heard that one before. I have no idea what ratiocination is, and I read quite a bit of this stuff. Uh, secondly, you have like absolutely off the charts Orientalism here, so making the the East seem spooky and mysterious. You know the the desert, the Far East, and uh, how it's just inherently different from 
from from the Western powers. And then uh, Corbeck introduces himself and he gives a hilariously uh, thorough rundown of his credentials. He says, my name is Eugene Corbeck. I am a Master of Arts and Doctor of Laws and Master of Surgery of Cambridge, Doctor of Letters of Oxford, Doctor of Science and Doctor of Languages of London University, Doctor of Philosophy of Berlin, Doctor of Oriental Languages of Paris. I have some other degrees, honorary and otherwise, but I need not trouble you with them. It's like, all right, Eugene, you've troubled us enough. So he's definitely a bit of a bit of a Van Helsing character. He's the knowledgeable one who has the info about ancient things, which will become crucial to the plot. Oh, he say, he also says the wonderful phrase, um, I am suitably feathered with diplomas. And then he says, fortunately for my interests and pleasures, but unfortunately for my pocket, I fell in with Egyptology. I must have been bitten by some powerful scarab, for I took it bad. I went out tomb hunting and managed to get a living of a sort, to learn some things you can't out of books. He then talks about how he met uh, the father, Trelawney, and how he's given to, he's in some way mixed up with the things Trelawney was studying when he fell into the coma, but uh, Corbeck is kind of sworn to secrecy about something. He's not able to tell them really what was up, at least for a while. And there's a whole lot more chapters of, you know, people trying to finger one another, not in the fun way, like with suspicions, and doctors and lawyers and uh, and policemen coming and going until finally we kind of get to the meat of the thing by chapter 10 the valley of the sorcerer and this is when Corbeck eventually admits look I know there's something weird going on and I have to let you in on it so he gives Ross the narrator a book a folio in Dutch print, printed in Amsterdam in 1650 and this is all about a an explorer a dutch explorer from 1650 going to a secret valley full of graves or with with a grave somewhere in the south of egypt back in the day and this is kind of where things finally kick off and i'm not a huge fan of uh, of regular crime novels i'm not a huge fan of wilkie collins so thus far you know my patience was a bit tested i've chosen the fun bits to read out but it's been very slow going but this is where the kind of spooky egypt stuff finally gets going and um I have a few more quotes here. So it says, oh, here's a fun thing. Uh, Ross says, for we had arranged amongst us before Dr. Winchester had gone home that she, that's Margaret, was not to be brought into the range of the coming investigations. So he gives a bunch of reasons why <laughs> they shouldn't include Margaret and in what's going on. But like, it's pretty obvious that she's just a woman and you couldn't possibly, she couldn't possibly, uh, be involved she couldn't possibly do something as as dangerous as this and like there have been i think she's fainted twice and she's constantly like oh i i couldn't possibly deal with this and you know real real typical kind of victorian stuff anyway get back to the book so stoker writes uh, this is ross narrating the book was by one nicholas van hoyn of Hoorn. in the preface he told how attracted by the work of john greaves of merton college pyramidographia he had himself visited egypt where he became so interested in its wonders that he devoted some years of his life to visiting strange places and exploring the ruins of many temples and tombs he had come across many variants of the story of the building of the pyramids as told by the arabian historian ibn abd al-hokin some of which he set down so he goes on to say that um he's traveling somewhere east of aswan which is fairly far south in, in at the southern border of what ancient Egypt was considered to be. 
And uh, one evening, traveling with uh, his fellahin, who were sort of like the Egyptian peasants who he hires, they come to the entrance of a narrow, deep valley. And he says, but the fellahin absolutely refused to enter the valley at such a time, alleging that they might be caught by the night before they could emerge from the other end. Ah, great. So here you have the, the classic trope of the superstitious locals who, on the one hand, you know, the book is kind of dis dismissive towards them because they're backwards and superstitious. And then with the other hand, they're saying, yeah, but like, because this is a horror story, they're they're right to be scared. And, and in fact, their suspicions are correct. And it's a trope that was to be used in all sorts of horror stories, but particularly in, in stories of the mummy. If you've ever seen any of the old universal ones are of the 1930s and 40s, or if you've seen the Hammer Horror uh, mummy films, this is a standard trope. The, the, the local Arab workers always don't want to go into the, into the tomb. And I think even as late as the 1999 Stephen Summers movie, they, they keep this trope as well. I, I have not ventured to look at the Tom Cruise one, and I don't really care to. So he finds out that the place they're in is called the Valley of the Sorcerer, which sounds ominous. And somebody, some king or queen was buried there, but they could not give the name, persisting to the last that there was no name and that anyone who should name it would waste away in life so that at death, nothing of him would remain to be raised again in the other world. So here you have the old world idea that erasing somebody's name um, was to re remove them from memory, from history, and would in some way prevent them from, you know, having immortality in, in the other realm. And of course, this makes me think of Akhenaten, the, the heretic pharaoh. So there was a particular pharaoh who immediately preceded Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun was not an important royal, really, in the scheme of things. He's only important to us because his tomb was not raided and therefore it had a lot of stuff in it. And we were able to learn a lot more about their society because of all the stuff that we found. But, you know, in the Egyptian scheme of things, he was... You know, he didn't reign for that long. He was quite young when he died and he wasn't tremendously important. But immediately before him, there was a pharaoh called Akhenaten, who was probably his father or, or cousin or some, some close relation anyway, um, we think, based on genetics. And Akhenaten was the heretic pharaoh because he very famously um, did away with the standard e e Egyptian sort of... Uh, pantheon of gods and established one single god based on the sun disk which he called Aten changed his name to Akhenaten after this god and sort of tried to change the whole system built new cities and new shrines and new temples and tried to change the whole society and after his reign was over the the historians and the religious elite kind of went back to the old ways and tried to remove all memory of Akhenaten uh, so again that's the idea that Stoker is using here I think that you, you take someone's name away because they're somehow, you know, cursed or, or, you know, they need to be forgotten and their name needs to be removed so that they, their influence is minimized. Uh, Akhenaten shows up all the time in like crazy conspiracy stuff. It's because he, he always portrayed himself with this really weird profile where he had a very long elongated head. And in truth, I don't think it's known why he did that, whether it was just some kind of stylistic thing or whether it was symbolic of something that we don't understand now but people sure like to make the connection to various ancient alien ideas so if you've seen those stupid doctored pictures of skulls with the giant uh, elongated pointed back ends like some kind of super alien gray and um, a lot of that comes from the Akhenaten having something to do with uh, ancient aliens idea anyway fun digression there 
In the narrowest part of the valley on the south side was a great cliff of rock rising sheer of smooth and even surface. Hereon were graven certain cabalistic signs and many figures of men and animals, fishes, reptiles and birds, suns and stars and many quaint symbols. Some of these latter were disjointed limbs and features, such as arms and legs, fingers, eyes, noses, ears and lips. Mysterious symbols which will puzzle the recording angel to interpret at the judgment day. So remember, this is being written by a Christian Dutch guy in, in the 1600s, so he interprets uh, things in a certain light. Anyway, things get better. They eventually discover that there's a mysterious tomb high up in the cliff and all entrance to the tomb has, has been destroyed. So he can see that there were steps leading up to it and that they have been removed. So he finds a local tribesman and hires him with some men and they try to climb down from the top of the cliff uh, to get into this uh, tomb. And he writes, The tomb I found to be complete, after the manner of the finest Egyptian tombs, with chamber and shaft leading down to the corridor, ending in the mummy pit. It had the table of pictures, which seems some kind of record, whose meaning is now forever lost, graven in a wondrous colour on a wondrous stone. All the walls of the chamber and the passage were carved with strange writings in the uncanny form mentioned. The huge stone coffin or sarcophagus in the deep pit was marvellously graven throughout with signs. The Arab chief and the two others who ventured into the tomb with me, and who were evidently used to such grim explorations, managed to take the cover from the sarcophagus without breaking it. At which they wondered, for such good fortune, they said, did not usually attend their efforts. Within the sarcophagus was a body, manifestly of a woman, swathed with many wrappings of linen, as is usual with all mummies. From certain embroiderings thereon, I gathered that she was of high rank. Across the breast was one hand unwrapped. In the mummies which I had seen, the arms and hands are within the wrappings, and certain adornments of wood, shaped and painted to resemble arms and hands, lie outside the unwrapped body. But this hand was strange to see, for it was the real hand of her who lay enwrapped there, the arm projecting from the cerements being of flesh, seemingly made as like marble in the process of embalming. Arm and hand were of dusky white, being of the hue of ivory that hath lain long in air. The skin and the nails were complete and whole, as though the body had been placed for burial overnight. I touched the hand and moved it, the arm being somewhat something flexible as a live arm, though stiff with long disuse, as are the arms of those fakirs which I had seen in the Indies. There was, too, an added wonder that on this ancient hand were no less than seven fingers, the same all being fine and long and of great beauty. Sooth to say, it made me shudder and my flesh creep to touch that hand had lain there undisturbed for so many thousands of years, and yet was like unto living flesh. Underneath the hand, as though guarded by it, lay a huge jewel of ruby, a great stone of wondrous bigness, for the ruby is in the main a small jewel. This was one of wondrous colour, being as of fine blood whereon the light shineth. But its wonder lay not in its size or colour, though these were, as I have said, of priceless rarity, but in that the light of it shone from seven stars, each of seven points, as clearly as though the stars were in reality there imprisoned. So, a few things to note here. Um, I guess, firstly, there is a tradition within certain turn-of-the-century novels of, like, the, the mysterious, dangerous, powerful woman, usually from the East, and the obvious connection here is with the book She by H.R. Haggard, 
um, which is great. I love it. But in all those kind of books and, and, you know, going as late as kind of sillier things like Princess of Mars by by Edgar Rice Burroughs, there's this obsession that, you know, there can there could be this ancient, powerful female who, you know, rules in a in an eastern savage land. But of course, she has to be white, like the, the obsession with saying, oh, she was powerful and ancient and, you know, and, and she ruled these you know, Oriental people, Arab people, African people, depending on the story, but they have to insist that, oh, but she was like white, though. It just shows up so often. It's like the Victorians couldn't possibly admit that any other group of people could, you know, produce a uh, a powerful leader who, you know, has to be respected on, on their own terms. So that's unfortunately a common trope, but it, it really does show, I think, where their head was at. And it, it leads into all sorts of other things like when the European explorers went out to other countries and discovered ancient lost cities and stuff in places like Zimbabwe, their immediate recourse was, oh, well, you know, no way the Africans made this must have been, you know, lost tribes of Israel or flipping, you know, uh, Vikings or any, anybody except local and uh, non-white people. Really, really sadly common trope. I'm just going to interrupt myself here to mention that what, what I'm discussing here really is not the actual question of the ethnicity of ancient Egyptians itself, but rather the the ethnicity of ancient Egyptians in the imagination of turn-of-the-century um, British people, in which I, I'm including Bram Stoker here, he was from Dublin, but he would still, uh, during most of his writings after he moved to London, he was essentially writing as a an Anglo-identifying person. He was Anglo-Irish, of course. That question of identity is more than I can get into in this episode, but Let's just keep things simple. Um, to the British identifying people of this time, um, the, the race of the ancient Egyptians mattered very much because they looked back at them as a sort of a, a progenitor of what they then considered to be the dominant culture, their own culture. So whether the Egyptians were white or not meant quite a great deal to them. Again, the actual real-life archaeological ethnicity of real-life ancient Egyptians is more than I can get into in this episode, but suffice it to say, it's an immensely complicated field. It is very politically charged. But if I were to be very brief about it, I might mention that it was probably quite a bit more diverse than anybody ex would have accepted back in those days. Uh, genetic information seems to imply there's a lot of uh, mixing with people from the Near East, so sort of Middle East uh, and Turkey and, and Syria and places like that, which makes sense based on our understanding of the history. Uh, and the art that the Egyptians left themselves seems to show a fairly wide range of different kinds of people. Uh, and finally, I'll just say that the whole concept of race, um, as it is generally thought of, is pretty out of date at the moment. Um, the obsession with race really peaks in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And since then, um, I mean, all, all that before the kind of invention of genetics or the discovery of genetics which really threw a lot of that stuff out of whack and um, kind of separating people into the neatly defined categories that the Victorians would have understood is not something that is taken seriously by most scientists today. The other thing that is of interest is that this book does fall into the sort of invasion literature narrative which I haven't mentioned yet incredibly so from about the 1870s uh, the British public were obsessed with this idea that you know, maybe the French or the Germans or some powerful European power would come and invade them. And, you know, and earlier than this, it was assumed to be the French because of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. But after Bismarck unites the 
the, the, the German states into one powerful new nation in, I think, 1870, or maybe 69. Um, the British start to become scared. And a book is written in 1870 called The Battle of Dorking. And uh, I always remember this because I did live in Dorking for a while. And Dorking has various um, sort of like Victorian and early 20th century era forts and uh, kind of ammunition depots that were set in a half ring shape around the south of London in case uh, an invading army ever came. So, and of course, these these tensions eventually did spill over into World War I, 1914. But in, in Victorian literature and early Edwardian literature, this idea comes up again and again where like, you know, England thinks they're on top. They're the biggest power now, but, you know, watch out. Those dastardly foreigners could come over and stir up trouble. And people people read this into Dracula, obviously, who is a, an Eastern a dangerous, powerful, shadowy Eastern ruler who comes to England with the intent of taking it over. Um, people read that into Jewel of Seven Stars as well. Here we have an Eastern mysterious ruler. Uh, she will turn out to be Queen Tara, uh, who ultimately wants to come to Britain and take over. So again, these anxieties are being dealt with. Probably the most direct on the nose um, version of this well, well I should mention in, in the Battle of Dorking basically it's like a fictional take on a German army invading the south of England and getting defeated at this town Dorking in Surrey and that was probably the most that was probably the most on the nose of the invasion literature novels but it's, it was always interesting to me that the next most important one was of course War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells in 1898 which again happens in Surrey because that's where he lived so the the Martians uh, can, can be seen as an example of an invading force from outside of Britain that have, you know, better technological abilities than the British and are able to kind of put them in their place. And it's kind of written to remind them, you know, you think you're top dog now, but what if somebody else came along who is more powerful than you? There's a lot of other... other. It's, it's not entirely... Um, I think it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, War of the Worlds. I don't think he's... he's like, the guy who wrote Battle of Dorking is, is basically trying to say, wake up! sheeple you know <laughs> don't be don't be uh sitting on your haunches and don't be relaxing because we need to whip up the army and the navy into shape in case the germans come and he meant that this, sincerely it was written by an ex an ex-military gentleman but hg wells was kind of more writing like we go around the world and you know knock around these other races because we happen to be more technologically advanced than them and therefore we think that that means we're right to do it but what if another agency with better tech than us came along and they were able to equip us does that mean that they have the right to do it are we any different to them so there was much more of a i think a satirical element but yeah it that that thinking though i find it interesting is more subliminal in in brown stoker's books it's definitely there in dracula and i think it's in jewel of seven stars as well so returning to the 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 manuscript of this dutchman in the 1650s in, in his egyptian tomb they take some stuff out of the tomb, um, and when they're leaving, he writes, The others did not come at once, from which I feared that they were rifling the tomb afresh on their own account. I refrained to speak of it, however, lest worse should befall. At last they came. One of them, who ascended first, and landing at the top of the cliff, lost his foothold and fell below. He was instantly killed. Great stuff. We're finally getting into the sort of the curse narrative, the, the, the idea that you mess with the tomb and uh, bad things happen to you. I love it. He then says, When we all stood on the hill above the cliff, the burning sun that was bright and full of glory was good to see after the darkness and strange mystery of the tomb. 
Even was I glad that the poor Arab, who fell down the cliff and lay dead below, lay in the sunlight and not in that gloomy cavern. I would have gone with my companions to see him and give him a sepulture of some kind, but the sheik made light of it and sent two of his men to see to it that see to it whilst we were on our way. Oh, those wily orientals and their lack of uh, <laughs> lack of care for life and death. So then he says, later in the light of the fire round which the men sat or lay, I saw him exhibit to his fellows something white which they seemed to regard with special awe and reverence. So I drew near silently and saw that it was none other than the white hand of the mummy which had lain protecting the jewel in the great sarcophagus. I heard the Bedouin tell how he had found it on the body of him who had fallen from the cliff. There was no mistaking it, for there were the seven fingers which I had noted before. This man must have wrenched it off the dead body whilst his chief and I were otherwise engaged, and from the awe of the others I doubted not that he had hoped to use it as an amulet or charm. Whereas if powers it had, they were not for him who had taken it from the dead, since his death followed hard upon his theft. Already his amulet had had an awesome baptism, for the wrist of the dead hand was stained with red, as though it had been dipped in recent blood. Brilliant. This is high, high concept, uh, high concept gothic horror here. And uh, the idea that you, you mess with the tombs, you steal their artifacts, and they will take a swift and direct vengeance upon you is really coming out of the, coming out here. So the mummy hand turns out to be a bit of a MacGuffin, a bit of a, a kind of an, 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 an actor of its own accord and I find this stuff genuinely creepy I love the idea that um he, he took the hand and died but the way it's revealed afterwards is brilliant he then says I waked out of sleep with the light of the morning sun on my face I sat up and looked around me the fire was out and the camp was desolate save for one figure which lay prone close to me it was that of the Arab chief who lay on his back dead his face was almost black and his eyes were open and staring horribly up at the sky, as though he saw there some dreadful vision. He had evidently been strangled, for on looking I found on his throat the red marks where fingers had pressed. There seemed so many of these marks that I counted them. There were seven, and all parallel except the thumb mark, as though made with one hand. This thrilled me as I thought of the mummy hand with the seven fingers. That's brilliant. Love it. Absolutely love it. This is what I came for. Never mind all of this, like, whodunit nonsense. Now, finally, we have, you know, ancient gods and curses coming out, coming out of the coffin. Uh, then he says, uh, returning to Ross, who is, of course, reading the, the manuscript, he says, Twice, whilst I had been reading this engrossing narrative, I had thought that I had seen across the page streaks of shade. He, oh, by the way, he's, like, sitting up in the room, keeping watch on the unconscious Trelawney, so it's the middle of the night. Uh, I had th thought that I had seen across the page streaks of shade, which the weirdness of the subject had made to seem like the shadow of a hand. On the first of these occasions, I found that the illusion came from the fringe of green silk around the lamp, but on the second I had looked up, and my eyes had lit on the mummy hand across the room on which the starlight was filing, falling under the edge of the blind. And then he says, there lay a real hand across the book. Ooh, jump scare. And it turns out to be the hand of Margaret, who's come in and uh, <laughs> struggling to kind of wake him out of his uh, his trance that, while he's reading. But again, look, we, 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 we cut from him staring at the mummy hand to seeing Margaret's hand right in his field of vision. A, a definite 
connection is being drawn there, but we won't find out exactly what that connection might be for for a little while. So um, I'm just going to mention, I can't resist telling a few stories about cursed mummy hands because there's, there's some connections here to the, the wider world of spooky Egypt thinking from the turn of the century. So to return to Cairo, the, the Irish occultist who was a big hit in London at about this time, and who wrote a lot of books and claimed a lot of weird things. It's, it's hard to know with this guy. He was an inveterate self-promoter. He claimed to have read everybody's hand and predicted, you know, really striking things for all sorts of famous and influential people. Um, the, the British PM at some point, uh, Mark Twain. The, he claimed to have read the hand of the, the Russian Tsar and warned him that the year 1917 was to be... Uh, a bad year for him so you never know with this guy but when I'm going to jump forward in time a little bit when when the the story about Howard Carter who don't forget had discovered the the real princess who who uh, the real ancient Egyptian queen who Queen Terra in this book is based on back in 1902 so years later he of course becomes world famous for the uh, uncovering the tomb of Tutankhamun about 1922 and uh, sure enough Cairo comes out of the woodwork being like oh yeah oh I've got a story about a curse mummy thing you know after reading in the paper about the supposed curse of the pharaohs which is the kind of thing Cairo would have done so but his story is great he he claims that well years ago of course back in in the 1890s he was traveling in Egypt and he met this uh, this Bedouin leader out in the desert and he was sick and Cairo you know, uh, re told his future, read his palm and kind of cured him of some disease. And the the leader of the Bedouin was so thankful that he said, let me give you this special artifact that my people have kept for a thousand years. And he gives them a severed, mummified mummy hand. And he tells them that this, this hand is the hand of the daughter of who else? The, the cursed pharaoh, the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten. So this is the hand of Akhenaten's uh, daughter, or sister, actually, I can't remember. <laughs> someone, someone close to him, I think it's a daughter. And he takes the hand back to his, his bachelor pad in London, and or he, he's married at this point, I should say. He takes it back to his pad in London and keeps it on the mantelpiece. And he says that uh, as he's reading in the paper about Howard Carter's expedition, something strange happens to the hand. It starts to grow fat and it starts, the skin starts to change colour and it starts to look young and healthy again. And he's horrified by this. He says it's as if blood is somehow pumping through the veins and bringing the hand back to life. And various other strange poltergeist type phenomena start happening around the, the, the apartment and, you know, uh, plates and crockery and stuff is thrown around and broken and his wife is really getting scared of all this. So he says, on Halloween night, when the veil between the worlds is at its thinnest, he finally reads, uh, this is hilarious, he reads a, uh, a spell from the Egyptian Book of the Dead to try and send uh, the woman back to the afterlife. And suddenly all the lights go out and the candles are blown out and the, the electric lighting goes out and the strange wind blows through the darkened apartment and the figure of a woman dressed in the manner of ancient Egypt with a stump for a hand comes into the apartment takes the hand and disappears so class story a uh, little bit suspect that uh, he only mentions this after the story of howard carter and the curse becomes a uh, big currency 
but I love it. And that I read that when I was a kid and I, I he must have taken some of these ideas from this book, like the idea of a, an ancient Egyptian princess with, with a missing hand and the hand itself being this kind of spooky cursed artifact definitely seems likely. I mean, Bram Stoker was, was well known. This book was, was well known. So future key in here with some extra information about this uh, story that I discovered while doing research for a, a different episode. So uh, through a website called Michael Gallagher Writes, I've been able to come across a little more information about this particular story. So according to this site, this story that Cairo tells about the mummy with the missing hand comes from a book he publishes in 1934, a book called True Ghost Stories. So that puts his story a lot later than everything else we've been discussing. Obviously a lot later than Bram Stoker's book, but also a lot later than uh, Howard Carter opening the tomb and everything that happened with the supposed mummy's curse in the British newspapers. So it could have been him after very, very long after the fact inserting himself into the story. But there's a few extra details here provided. Um, Michael Gallagher writes that the name of the, the female mummy who plagues Cairo is Maquette, and she is in fact a daughter of Akhenaten. We also get the, the extra detail here that Cairo was living in America at the time. Now, Cairo's own biography is kind of famously convoluted. I'm not always entirely sure exactly when it was that he was living where. Firstly, because he went back and forth between Europe and America a few times in his life. He also spent a little time in prison and he also tended to fudge um, dates and details in his own books. So it's not always sure. But in this version of the story, the... The, the mummy situation with himself and his wife and the, the mummy with the missing hand happens in their apartment in somewhere in the United States. So it says uh, Cairo took the hand back to the United States but made the decision to cremate it after the skin began to regain its former elasticity and secrete blood. He and his wife consigned it to the flames on the evening of Halloween 1922 as they watched Maquette's spirit appeared before them. The next day, if we believe Cairo's version of events as opposed to Howard Carter's, Tut's tomb was unearthed. In 1923, Maquette made yet another appearance, this time with a warning for Lord Carnarvon that his death would ensue if any of the tomb's treasures were disturbed. So yeah, this is definitely Cairo, Cairo uh, writing himself into the now super famous curse of Tutankhamun, inserting himself into that story. He claims also that he wrote a letter to Howard Carter warning him um, to stop looking for the tomb or not to go into the tomb because, you know, and he tells him this story about the mummy as if to show, look, I know what kind of ancient powers the Egyptians had. Don't mess with them. Whether or not he really did that is up for debate. He tended to exaggerate his own importance in some of these stories and whether Howard Carter would have paid any attention to that sort of spiritual interpretation of things seems unlikely from what I've read. Some books do sort of imply that even though Howard Carter outwardly was sceptical about these things. Um, personally, he had some worries. I haven't seen any hard evidence for that. Uh, Lord Carnarvon, on the other hand, I think would have been much more susceptible to this. Uh, Carnarvon was something of a spiritualist and was known to host seances at his at his castle, Highclere Castle in England. Whether or not um, he took the curse seriously before he died, is I don't think he ever made a concrete statement on that one, but he certainly would have been more open to it than Howard Carter. I can't resist telling a second story about Cairo. So supposedly, again, hard to know with him because he did so much self-mythologizing. But the story goes that when he was young, he was getting interested in the occult. And his father, who this was in, in, in Wicklow, he was from Wicklow. 
His father, who was a churchman, was not impressed by him meddling with you know, the dark forces. So they had a, a fight and he left and he said he wanted to go and make his way in the world and be an independent young man. So at the age of, of about 14, he gets on a boat for London because he wants to go where the action is. He wants to see the centre of the empire and make something of himself. So the story goes that he's getting on a train in the UK and he picks up a booklet in a railway station, which was a Victorian thing to do, and it's about palmistry. And supposedly this is his first um, brush with this particular occult art. And he's reading the book about palmistry and learning how it works on the train when a an, el an elder or an older bald and bearded gentleman sitting across from him says you know oh, palmistry you don't believe that rot do you and they're talking about it and Caro says no this looks interesting I think it's probably real and the man says well would you like to try it on me so the older guy gives him the hand and Caro reads his palm and says oh well I can see you're somebody important and the guy says well yes yes I'm fairly high up in politics and then Cairo says, well, your hand here tells me that you will you will rise high, but then be brought low by a scandal involving a woman and a love affair. And the guy laughs and says, oh, I'm far too busy with my political career. There's no way that I, I would ever have time for women. And then as he gets off the train later, the guy gives Cairo his card, his business card or whatever, his gentleman's card, I suppose. And his name is Charles Stewart Parnell. So if you know your Irish history, Charles Stuart Parnell is an incredibly important figure in the, the Home Rule movement. He was the guy who probably came the closest that ever anybody ever claim, came to getting political autonomy for Ireland by strictly political means and not violence. So he came very close to this. They called him the uncrowned king of Ireland. He went all around the country stirring up um, uh, support with these amazing speeches and he made a lot of progress in the British Parliament to getting home, some measure of home rule, but he was eventually laid low because of a scandal by him being involved with a married woman, Kitty O'Shea, which the, basically the British establishment always had it in for him and uh, the papers made a scandal out of this. Of course, Victorian times, you, you couldn't do stuff like this. It's a mad story. He was advised by everybody in his life to just look man just just retire from politics for a year quietly remarry this woman she was divorced at this point and do it somewhere out of the public eye and then come back and continue your political goals even of all people the his, his arch political enemy lloyd george the welsh wizard the, the, the pm um wrote to him and said dude retire remarry and then return so obviously even though they were at odds politically uh, lloyd george respected him enough to give him this sage advice but I'd say his head must have been huge at this point his ego was huge and he didn't do it and he it's one of the saddest stories for those of us who read Irish history it's the closest we ever came to um, political autonomy without resorting to violence so he's a bit of a hero of mine do I think that he really met a 14 year old Cairo on a train and <laughs> was told his fortune uh, I don't know <laughs> he sh uh, Cairo sure was a good storyteller
And that's where I think we leave it for today, folks. That takes us about halfway through the book, which seems like a good place to call a halt to what we're going to be calling part one. So this has been Wide Atlantic Weird. I'm Kean, and we've been reading The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. This ran a little bit longer than I expected, but maybe I should have expected it too, because as you can tell, this book gets us into all sorts of uh, great areas that I love talking about. I really, really, really love the connection between turn-of-the-century Gothic thinking and the fascination with ancient Egypt. The whole orientalization of everything, uh, problematic as it is, leads us into some very, very interesting places. And I think the, the fascination with making the ancient world into something weird and mysterious has ramifications, good and bad, that are definitely still with us today. So if you've enjoyed this episode, you know what to do, folks. My biggest takeaway for you today is please share it with somebody who you think might like it. I would love to get more downloads. I'd love to get more listens. And the only thing I need from you is to spread the word about the podcast, okay? So share it or retweet or whatever it is that you do really, really helps a whole lot. Uh, otherwise reviews stars all that good stuff we'd love to have it as usual if you have any weird stories yourself or if anything strange has happened to you and you'd like us to talk about it or if you have an idea for a book or a movie or a, a story of uh, paranormal folklore or anything like that you think we should investigate please do get in touch so once again thanks we for listening and stay safe it's the practice of evil <laughs> And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a 